0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello, Arizona. Welcome to Logitimate with Mike and Rochelle Poulton, where we share our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Poulton with the law firm Poulton and Arroyan. We provide business law services throughout Arizona and California, as well as business consulting services, and this is my wife and co-host Rochelle.
1: Hi, I'm Rochelle Poulton, your favorite consumer rights attorney with XFIRM. You can find us online at xfirmlaw.com. And today's topic is we're talking about the Rackets Three, all of the terrible ways that businesses make money. And but first, we want to cover our LBL moment law, business, and life. So today's law moment has to do with the autonomous zone or Chaz.
0: Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. I'm sure if anybody's been watching the news for the last few weeks, you're aware that protesters have taken over uh, a few blocks in the city of Seattle on Capitol Hill in their downtown area, and it is uh, occupied fully by the protesters who have ejected the police and insist that they will maintain their own autonomous civilization in that area without the assistance or influence of the Seattle government or the state of Washington, or the United States of America. And in fact, when they took over this area, uh, there within a few days were some signs posted at the entrance points to their zone that said, you're now leaving the United States and entering the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. So this raises a lot of interesting questions beyond just the protest matters. And we'll say, first of all, that we both Uh, strongly support the protests against police brutality and the need for reform in our criminal justice system. Um, We're not here to contest that. But this is an unusual approach that these people have taken, and it actually raises some pretty serious legal questions. And one of the biggest of those legal questions is whether their actions constitute treason. And you might think that that's hyperbolic, but really there's a pretty clear question there. When you declare that an area within the United States is no longer part of the United States and you hold it by force and you eject the government and say that you're not going to abide by any level of government above you, that that does constitute secession from the United States and according to both federal law and the state law of Washington could pretty clearly be construed to be treason. Now, why is nobody pursuing this?
1: Uh,
0: it's a Probably bad because it would be bad. It, it, it would look bad for the government to, to go in there and, and take these people down and call them traitors to our country, when in fact the purpose of what they're doing is to make our country better through political action. A lot of protesters within the zone have commented to media and also online that their declaration of independence from the United States is not really serious. They don't intend to take this section of downtown Seattle and make it a new country they mean it more in an aspirational sense or a a colloquial sense. Um, And that, I think, would provide a good defense for them if they were to be charged with treason. This, of course, is not legal advice for any of these people. We're just talking for for broadcast purposes here. But I, I think they've got some defenses in that they really weren't serious about leaving the country. And they were allowed to take over this zone. Certainly, if the state really wanted to have it back, they would be able to because These are not well-armed groups. Uh, They didn't kill anybody to to take over the area. And it could quite easily be retaken by the government if need be. But I will say that I am glad that there hasn't been force used to take it back. Uh, Our country has a long history of this type of protest.
1: It's a sit-in. It is. It is a (laughs) sit-in.
0: Uh, And it's not even the first time that protesters have declared parts of Seattle to be independent zones. Uh, Even back in the 70s, there were protests of this type there where government buildings were occupied for extended periods of time by force, by protesters who were seeking change. Uh, And hey, guess what? They ultimately got most of what they wanted. Uh, Those movements succeeded. And then you (laughs) sit
1: in for a cause. It's very effective. In the 60s, they did it. And uh, for to protest racial segregation. And Mm -hmm. it was pretty effective aimed at it. The American American
0: Indian movement. movement. I
1: mean, they took over Alcatraz. They took over uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I mean, and those were
0: prolonged and and violent. AIM used substantial force in a lot of those actions but ultimately they accomplished a number of their goals.
1: Yes, sit-ins have proven very effective. So I think it's not really fair to look at it as succession the way Texas maybe looks at it that way (laughs) uh, when they want to secede. But realistically, this is really a sit-in and hopefully, I think one of the big differences between maybe this group or the 504 sit-in from the 70s for Americans with Disabilities Act Mm -hmm. um, is there's no clear leadership. Those groups were highly organized and had specific goals. And maybe not everybody was listening, but after a couple of weeks, you really couldn't ignore them anymore. So I hope that in Seattle, they form some leadership.
0: (laughs) Which is an interesting point, Rochelle, because the group responsible, it's hard to call them a group because it's just the people who are currently there. It's whichever people are currently in that area are the group. And they have no leadership, no formal Mm -hmm. leadership. There was someone who was touted as a leader a while ago. Uh, It seemed never to be ratified by the people. And law enforcement action was directed at him. So they've decided they will not have formal leadership. They hold community meetings, but nobody is in charge. Um, That's not working great. Uh, It is worth (laughs) noting that the city is still providing trash service Mm -hmm. and utilities and pretty much everything except police services to that area and they will still send police in case of a life-threatening emergency. So it really is not that autonomous, and they are not running it independently, uh, and there is no leadership, but they do have a list of 30-some demands, including just complete reform of the entire criminal justice system, retrial for convicted criminals, uh, elimination of criminal records, all kinds of stuff that goes pretty far beyond uh, anybody else's coordinated platform for the current set of protests. So it's interesting to see where this goes. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about the federal government coming in, sending federal troops in to take it back or something. I really hope that doesn't happen. This is a local issue for Seattle. We're talking about a few blocks of a downtown area here. They can all decide how they want to handle that themselves. Uh, and they have a long history in that city of letting these things play out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's we gonna should be fine. all watch and just see what happens. And it'll probably turn out fine. And wiki sit-ins.
1: <laughs> and you will find a bunch of them. And there are uh, a lot of correlations. It's yep. great. So Absolutely. read up.
0: So that is our law moment for today.
1: Rochelle, you want to talk about our business moment? Our business moment, yes. The LBL business moment. We want to talk about masks and PPE for your employees. So in Arizona, everyone is starting to opening back up for business. And as attorneys, we always have to look at liability. And one of the liability issues out there is, will employees sue you if they get sick? Not just during coronavirus, but from here on out for failure to provide appropriate PPE measures.
0: And for exposing you by having other employees work while they're sick. I think what we're seeing is an overall change in people's understanding of how illnesses spread Mm -hmm. and what all of us can do, both in controlling a workplace and also in our own personal decisions, to avoid getting sick and to avoid spreading illnesses that we've got. And a lot of this was common sense stuff that everybody knew, but we just never acted on it. Collectively, (laughs) as Americans, we weren't big on that. Until now, and now, now we are, and and in some cases, it's mandated by law with with regard to coronavirus. But I would foresee, and Rochelle is foreseeing, that there may be some real long term changes in what is considered reasonable when it comes to protecting your employees and your customers from exposure to a contagious illness. It used to be that you really just didn't have to worry about it. Yep. Um, if someone was physically capable of working and they didn't have something uh, really fatally dangerous like tuberculosis, then you didn't have any obligation to protect other people from them. But now you do in, in a reasonable sense. And that's likely to persist after coronavirus. So I would certainly foresee that if there's another major uh, serious flu outbreak, like the H1N1 swine flu outbreak in 2009, something like that happens again. Employers are going to be on the hook for making sure it doesn't spread in their workplace. And if somebody gets seriously ill from that because an employer made somebody else work while they were sick or didn't allow people to wear masks or perhaps even didn't provide masks (laughs) to their employees. Or
1: hand sanitizer. Or hand
0: sanitizer. Or or mandatory bathroom breaks. Exactly. All of the sort of reasonable things that you can do and that are now being recommended to avoid coronavirus If employers don't continue to do those things in the future to prevent the spread of illnesses that can be serious, there's a darn good chance they could be sued for that. And what it will come down to is whether a jury of people who have lived through the coronavirus outbreak at that point think that it's okay to make somebody go to work when they're sick and expose their coworkers without taking precautions. Um, And I would venture a guess that a jury would be willing to hold an employer liable for that a year from now, two years from now?
1: Yeah, things to think about. So I think the mandatory doctor's note for an employee needing time off from work is going to disappear. Yeah, that's <laughs> not <gonna lie. laughs> I think if you're sick, you should just stay home. <laughs> like if you need an, an ice cream day or a vodka day or whatever, uh, employers should start offering way more flexible PTO and not just sick leave. Because we are people and you got to take care of yourself, even when you're not sick. So
0: just keep that in mind. And even aside from that, the idea of a doctor's note being required in order to miss work has always been a little ridiculous. Yes. And it's always really just been an unnecessary hurdle. But it's now a hurdle that I think carries liability with it. Because you know that doesn't really have anything to do, whether somebody can obtain a doctor's note or not has nothing to do with whether they're actually too sick to work. And especially when you can't reasonably get to a doctor same day, that that just doesn't fly anymore. And if the employer's actions result in someone coming into work with a contagious illness and they spread it around, man, I I think you're on the hook for that these days.
1: Yes. I think, you know, employers requiring uh, employees to wear masks is coming soon. Mandatory temperature checks are coming soon, whether or not those will stay permanent, Who knows? But it's things to keep in mind. So if you own a small business and you have employees, just keep this in mind. Uh, There's nothing mandatory yet, Um, but there probably won't be before people start getting sued.
0: Yeah. That's important to remember that just because the government hasn't mandated something yet doesn't mean that as a business owner or someone who's responsible for a workplace, that you don't have a duty at law to do that thing. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you're required to do as an employer that aren't specifically mandated by the government. And there are all sorts of things that you are not allowed to do as an employer that are not specifically mandated by the government. That's what tort law is. All kinds of stuff that you can be liable for because it was unreasonable and it harmed somebody. So the key now is to be reasonable and to put everyone's well-being at the forefront of your mind, even if it's not necessarily the best for your business, if it's going to cost you some money. Uh, possibly reduce your revenue, reduce your capacity to serve customers. It's on you to take appropriate steps to protect everybody, your employees and your customers. And the tort law system will hold you accountable if you don't. I have a number of clients who are relying on me for advice on how to handle uh, coronavirus in in their businesses in particular, because their businesses involve people having close contact with each other uh, or coming through in high volume. And It's tough. It's hard to come up with good solutions to these things. But the bottom line is, you have an obligation to put some real thought, effort, and money into that. You need to really dedicate yourself to coming up with thoughtful analysis and solutions for how you can avoid the spread of coronavirus or any other infectious disease at your business uh, or at the, the workplace that you control, because that is a legal obligation you've got. And it is getting more complicated to do that these days. Uh, and you may well end up being sued if you don't. Uh, and there's a darn good chance that you do not have an insurance policy that will address that.
1: pro tip: <laughs> Kind of depressing. <laughs> Moving yep. on to the life moment. <laughs> so today's life moment, we want to talk about the news. Uh, the best way to process the news If you're only getting your news from one source, I'm sorry to tell you, but you are doing it wrong. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You have to read way more. Like You can't just watch Fox or MSN or NBC or whatever you're watching and expect to be getting the full story. You need to be able to see all of the perspectives because news is highly editorialized these days. There's a lot of clickbait. There's a lot of sponsored stories, sponsored content. Getting to the root of the news has gotten way more complicated these days than it, it had, has ever been before. So we wanted to talk about our approaches to digesting the news.
0: <laughs> and I think one of the the keys before we get into the how-to is the why. Mm-hmm. And as Rochelle just mentioned, news is not very high quality these days. Some I'm, not, is. I'm not sure it ever was on the whole, <laughs> but I would say that it used to be better. I would say CNN used to be more neutral. I would say that NBC, MSNBC used to be more neutral than they are. And when I say more neutral, I mean the content had less editorial aspect to it. It was more factually stated with less editorial bias and with less opinion thrown in. Now, everybody's looking for opinion. They want to hear people say things that sound like what they would say themselves, things that resonate with their own feelings and opinions. And and they don't want to be exposed to things that confront their feelings and opinions negatively. Unfortunately, that's just life. And if you really want to know what's going on in the world, you've got to subject yourself, and I mean subject yourself, (laughs) to to some news and perspectives that you really don't like from people you disagree with. Uh, And you got to do it every day, you know? Um, I read across the news spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, Fox had been my go-to, but I always read CNN. I always read ABC. Uh, AZ Central for local, as Mm -hmm. well as ABC 15. Um, You just got to look at all the sources. And when you see each of them reporting the same story, just skim all of them. And then you get a more balanced perspective on that issue, because you'll find different facts being reported, and you'll find uh, different parts of the story being emphasized. And if you really want to know what's going on, hit up the BBC yes.
1: <laughs> if you want to know the what Guardian. <laughs> yeah. NPR yeah. is great. You got to just <laughs> look at the full spectrum. Google News has awesome headlines, just kind of a full scope of everything out there. Reddit is awesome. If you want to know kind of what's going on, big stories in the news and how people are responding. Um, yes. You know, there's just a lot of great stuff out there. Surprisingly, TMZ has come Man. out
0: as being like the forefront
1: of breaking news coverage. It's TMZ hilarious. It's
0: probably one of the better news outlets for breaking news these days. <laughs> it's shocking. It's incredible. If they break a story, it is almost certainly accurate. They have nearly 100% track record on breaking news. Which is nuts. Yeah. Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is a good source, especially for international. Um, you just got to go everywhere. And then back it up with social media. Yes, and independent media what does online. Say? Yep. What <laughs> What are the blog posts saying? What's going viral? Um, What's on Medium? Yeah, Medium. Uh, look at the videos. Watch original videos. This is especially important. There's so much video content, uh, viral video content, cell phone videos that get shared. It's almost more prevalent as the source of on scene news video these yeah. days than professional content is. And you got to watch the original videos because when you see things getting shared and articles being written about them, you can miss a lot of important context and and detail. Um, And especially with the serious issues that we're currently dealing with, with police brutality and the protests, um, there is no substitute for seeing it with your own eyes. You need to watch the videos, even very uncomfortable ones that you don't want to see because you're not really participating in the discussion and informing yourself unless you've done that.
1: So if you want to have opinions, that's awesome. We're yep. just asking that you adult level that and level it. read more. Read it all. <laughs> and then read some more. Yep. I mean, going through the news is great. And if you're one of those people that you just like to watch it all day, try different channels, try different yeah. networks, uh, switch it up, you know, figure out what's kind of really going on. Otherwise, if you're just watching the same outlet day after day, hour after hour, it will rot your brain. Like you really have to get a broader perspective these days. And because we're, you know, a more sophisticated society, unfortunately, we require everyone to have more sophisticated opinions. So it's not being unreasonable to ask you to read everything across multiple spectrums so you can understand everyone's perspective or at least have an idea of what the counterpoint is.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's see to the we have now the rackets, the rackets three so this is our third episode on the rackets bad business practices that cost you money and we've talked about a, a whole lot bunch, a whole bunch of stuff up up to this point but
1: today we've today got, we
0: have three specific topics you want to introduce them Rochelle
1: Yeah we're going to cover some stuff that drives me nuts number one medical debt we're going to cover vehicle repossessions again cuz i feel like i can't talk about that enough and of course interest rates gone wrong. So specifically dealing with post-judgment interest, credit card debt, and student loans. So first up, medical debt. The rising cost of medical debt has just kind of ballooned out of control. If you haven't seen it yet, there was a a victim of coronavirus that survived that received a $1.1 million medical bill. And you're only going to see more of them because healthcare is really expensive. Like it was $200, $200,000 a day or something. And that's, um, <laughs>
0: that is not even the only gigantic coronavirus no. bill that's gone viral. There have been some other. That's just the that recent
1: one in Seattle.
0: Several hundred thousand dollars, uh, 800 some thousand dollars. And now the biggest I've seen is this $1.1 million bill. So as a victim of coronavirus, What can you do to avoid getting a gigantic medical bill that you could never pay? Uh, I don't think you avoid it. There isn't anything you can do. That's why this is a racket. (laughs) This is just how our medical system is working in the United States these days. And perhaps is the reason we should be questioning our overall healthcare system. Because the bottom line is, if you end up in an ICU for six weeks on a ventilator, uh, you're going to rack up over a million dollars in expenses. That's just what it costs. What does it cost to provide that kind of care in other countries uh, at the same level of care? Well, it costs about the same. It, it's just really expensive to do that. You're using huge amounts of extraordinarily complicated cutting-edge technology to keep somebody alive on life support, and you've got a whole team of highly educated uh, highly trained, and highly trained staff taking care of them 24-7. It's really expensive. There's no getting around that. It's a million dollars worth of work. The question is, who pays that million (laughs) dollars and who is stuck with that bill? And here in the United States, unless you have excellent insurance coverage, even if you do, even if you do, you're going to be paying a large portion of that yourself. Um, and I do not know in the case of that $1.1 $1. $1 million bill, how much of that's covered by insurance.
1: Most of it because yeah. he had, um, you know, he was an older gentleman who has Medicare, Medicaid, and I yeah. think he was also a veteran. So his complete out-of-pocket expense might be a couple thousand dollars. But for a lot of people, it's going to be way more than that, especially like, if you don't have good health care coverage because you had pre-existing conditions.
0: Like if you're on an eighty-twenty plan, 20% of a million dollars, 200 grand. Go luck with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is your copay. <laughs> yeah, it's your rough. Copay is your house. Um,
1: Not a very good deal. No, no. So you know, dealing with just how to reduce medical expenses in general, it's really important to start looking at where are you seeking care. So mm-hmm. for people who just go to the emergency room, like that's your first thought. Back it up. Like, do you need? Is this an actual emergency? You know, could you go to an urgent care instead? Could you schedule a visit with your primary care physician? Um, Those are great ways to mitigate medical costs because sometimes people just go to the emergency room every time they get sick, every time something happens. And an ER visit is exponentially more expensive. Usually that rate is starting at something like $1,300 an hour or two grand or for maybe a Tylenol and a temperature taking. So, or maybe some blood work if you're lucky. So you really have to to weigh it these days. It is a cost benefit analysis. Now, if it is an emergency, for the love of God, go to the hospital, <laughs> go to the emergency room if it is an emergency, but you know, you, if you're sprained ankle, uh, see if you can get a, go to urgent care you know? Absolutely. Uh, if you just need imaging, see if you can schedule that appointment out. And plus there's telemedicine
0: now. It's important to remember that the same care can be way more expensive under some circumstances than under others. I ended up in the ED a few weeks ago, got an ambulance ride uh, for something that ended up not being particularly serious. We don't really know what it was, but it sure seemed like a real emergency at the time. I would call 911 again under those circumstances. But the end result is probably going to be somewhere around $4,000 worth of expense on that. Uh, It was 10 grand total.
1: I looked at all the bills today. Was it?
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. So about 10 grand for that, of which several thousand is going to come out of our pocket. And that was for essentially no real medical care. That was all evaluation, transportation, monitoring for a short time. I was not admitted, was out the same night. That's all basically overhead. That's 10 grand essentially in overhead just to get taken in, evaluated, processed, and then eventually released. So unless you really need that, which means your life may be in danger, um, you shouldn't be doing it that way. That's not a cost-effective approach to getting your medical care needs uh, handled. So urgent care is great. Telemedicine is great. Your primary care office is probably more capable of handling things more easily than you think they are these Mm -hmm. days. Uh, Chances are you can get on the phone with your doctor and get things handled, or get on a video conference with them within a couple of days and get things handled. So,
1: I think for most of my adult life, I didn't realize the importance of having a primary care physician, (laughs) you know, because I I never needed a doctor. I didn't go. I'm relatively healthy, nothing wrong. But then, you know, all of a sudden it was like, you know, why don't you have a primary care doc? Because every time someone asks, I just put NA. But now I have one. So, if I've got like questions, I can just talk to my doctor. And it makes it a lot easier. And then they help me figure out specialists for other needs. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, I have allergies. You should investigate that. Oh, that's solid advice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I think that gets to another important point about how to reduce your medical care costs. And that is handle your medical care early. Preventative Uh, maintenance. maintenance and early identification and treatment of problems. It's always better. This isn't just a cost issue. A lot of us, I think, these days are tending to ration our medical care and limit what we seek care for, partly because of coronavirus, partly because of the expense of the healthcare system these days. But that's not really a good approach. If you've got health insurance that's worth anything at all, it will cover quite a lot of your routine care uh, and give you a lot of good options for those things to be handled early. Uh, You can get your routine checkups done with minimal copays. You can do a whole bunch of things like that, and uh, it's really important that you seek out that preventive maintenance and do that routine care. And as soon as you've got a problem that's cropping up, just go get it checked out, Or, yeah. or set something up to talk with your doctor to get it checked out because it's always cheaper and easier to do it early. Yes, it is.
1: So let's talk. We've, we're talking a lot about. Uh, what to do? You know, but what have you? What do you do now that you've already gone and you got the bill, right? Yeah. Like, let's talk about fighting charges.
0: Yeah. It's too late. You, you took the ambulance <laughs> ride. Right. It's too late. Now you, need, now you need real help.
1: Yeah. So I always recommend talk to your medical provider, right? So if you went to the hospital. Who knows how many bills you're going to get? You know, not everybody is affiliated with the facility that you went to. There's a lot of subcontractors and third parties involved, so you're going to want to talk to them, especially if you're disputing the charges. We see a lot of issues with, you know, especially pediatric hospitals where you go in and you got stuck with a four thousand dollar bill. First thing you got to do is talk to the hospital, Uh, request an itemized bill, dispute some charges, ask for reasonable billing amounts. Escalate that uh, eventually the healthcare provider will either offer you their packet for financial hardship. Financial hardship packets are awesome, everybody has them. Sometimes they will forgive your medical expenses outright, sometimes they'll give you a settlement offer for half, sometimes they'll take payments of $20 for the rest of your life. Whatever the case is, you know, there are a lot of options for dealing with that medical debt. But if you really have a problem with the bill and how much it is, talk to the medical provider. And in addition to that, just because life is hard, you also have to talk to your insurance company. (laughs) (laughs) You have to request an explanation of benefits from the company and see what exactly was billed. And if you disagree with it, dispute. Dispute the claims. If anything was denied, anything didn't cover as much as you should have, thought it should have, should have, whatever your belief uh, is with, with regards to what's wrong with the bill, dispute it. And then once you get the results back, appeal it. And then appeal it again and just keep escalating it. Like you have to be, unfortunately, your own advocate when it comes to fighting uh, medical bill charges in order to get billing corrected. So you got to attack it from the medical provider standpoint and from the insurance standpoint. Unfortunately, the problem with, you know, this process, especially if you have a lot of medical bills is, well, I'm just going to get an attorney. Attorneys don't necessarily deal with medical billing. Unfortunately, a lot of healthcare insurance providers will not talk to a lawyer about your claims process. They don't accept claim um, disputes by attorneys. They won't acknowledge powers of attorney. They always cite, you know, HIPAA compliance and things like that. So if you're going to get a lawyer involved, it may or may not be as effective as you going out and doing the hard work yourself. There are a lot of attorneys out there that will help you through the process or at least provide you with guidance like myself, but it's a tough call. So just make sure that if you have a big bill and you're freaking out about it, call the healthcare provider and see what the options are. Sometimes they'll just settle with you on the spot for something that is super reasonable. And sometimes your insurance company just didn't pay the claim and all you need to do is have it submitted. So it could be an easy solution. It could be a complicated one. But either way, fight the charges and be persistent. Super
0: persistent. (laughs) Bulldog it. And ultimately, work to change our healthcare system. Call your your legislators. uh, Focus on voting in the primaries based on people who are working on improving our healthcare system. There are a lot of different solutions that could be used, but... The bottom line is we've got a system right now that has essentially no free market competition. And no transparency. And no transparency. Uh, When you go to receive healthcare services, you've got no way of picking based on price or comparing between providers based on the cost. So nobody really has much of an incentive to charge you less. And your insurance company only has a moderate incentive to negotiate lower rates with providers because ultimately you're the one paying for it. Insurance companies have nearly fixed profit margins. Uh, What they pay out for care doesn't matter all that much to them because their premiums are set based on the cost of care. So essentially, you've got somebody negotiating for you, the insurance company, who is not actually incentivized to get you a better deal in the long run, uh, or at least not very incentivized. So you wonder why our healthcare costs have increased so dramatically over the last two decades? Why not? why not? (laughs) Why wouldn't they? (laughs) (laughs) This is not a free market system we're operating currently, uh, nor is it a centralized single payer system. It is neither. It is instead a poorly regulated bureaucratic uh, bureaucratic disaster. Yes. (laughs) It could use some love. It could use some love. We've got a lot of dedicated healthcare providers in this country, but the overall administrative system they work within is pretty defective.
1: Like, why isn't there a database for all of your prescriptions? (laughs) Come on.
0: A lot of questions like that. (laughs) Let's build some like solid infrastructure. Let's work on that anyway. Anyways, (laughs) the next racket, vehicle repossessions. This this is something I hear about all the time because Rochelle frequently gets quite upset about repo issues and then uh, comes talking to me about it venting. So what do I'm you got?
1: insight. <laughs> so the rise of the repo, of the repo, problems with vehicle repossessions are not the fact that people have repos, it's the fallout from the repo. Uh, vehicle repossessions have deficiency balances that I've just seen grow so much in the last few years. Used to be when I would see a repo maybe seven or eight years ago it would be a couple thousand bucks, maybe like three thousand dollars and you could settle it and move on with your life and things would be fine but now I see repossessions for like the deficiency balance is thirty thousand dollars you know fifteen thousand dollars like insane amounts of money that people don't have I mean 30 grand is the cost of a car like what did you buy I mean you made payments on it for two years how do you still owe thirty thousand dollars
0: So what Rochelle is talking about here is uh, when you get a car repossessed, often, usually, nowadays, just virtually every time, you're also going to get sued for more money. So they take your car back and then they demand that you pay them also. So- Well, they take it, they sell it, and then there's a balance left over. So, yes. (laughs) So that, it covers a few things. And it's not totally illegitimate for there to be a deficiency balance. The idea is that if you buy a brand new car, that car loses a significant percentage of its value as soon as you drive it off the lot, maybe 25 to 33% of its value if it's a a fairly expensive car. As soon as you drive it off the lot and it's no longer a new car, it's worth way less than what you just paid for it. We all know that, but the problem with that is that if you financed almost the entire transaction, so it's a $30,000 car and you finance 28,000 of it, that car is worth way less than 28,000 as soon as you drive it away. And after six months, it's worth dramatically less than what you owe on it. And that means that if you don't pay your payments and the car gets repossessed and they go to sell that car to pay the note that you didn't pay, uh, they're not going to be able to get enough money to cover their note. And the only way they would is if you only financed maybe half of the price of the car or two thirds of the price of the car. But most people don't have that big of a down payment to make. So you end up in this situation where there's always going to be a gap for quite a while while you own that car between its market value and the amount that you owe on it. Um, that's fine. And that's, that's just the way it works. But the problem that Rochelle's talking about here is that the finance companies have been working pretty hard, it seems, over the last few years to make that gap as big as possible. And coming up with a whole bunch of approaches to the repo game that allow them to charge you damn near the entire price of the car (laughs) as the deficiency. You buy a $30,000 car, default on the payments, they take the car, sell it, and then they tell you that you owe them $25,000. Well, how is that even possible, Rochelle? How is that possible? So there's this thing called the Uniform Commercial Code
1: that governs these types of contracts. And if you bring up UCC to an attorney, their first thought is going to be, nope, buy, read about that in law school, hated it. But the problem with the commercial code is that it allows uh, vehicles to be sold in a commercially reasonable manner. And what drives me nuts as a consumer rights attorney is what commercially reasonable means. So these days, what's acceptable and all of the courts are like, yeah, that's totally cool, is you have a private auction for dealers to liquidate vehicles that they sell to each other post repossession. And so you have a company that online evaluates uh, the damage to the car that then assesses what it should sell for and what the fair market value is. And then they sell it during a private auction to dealers who are buying liquidated vehicles so they can sell them at a profit, used, and that's a commercially reasonable sale.
0: So in other words, just... For clarity here, if you look up the Blue Book value of the car that gets repoed, it may be say twenty thousand dollars, and indeed that car will eventually sell to the new person who's going to drive that around as their own car. It's gonna, they're they're going to buy that for twenty grand, but that's not the credit you get for your repo because when it's repoed, it doesn't get sold directly to that next guy who's going to drive that car to work every day. It gets sold behind an auto dealership to a closed group of other auto dealers only, no public allowed, uh, in this little so-called commercially reasonable auction where these dealerships get to shuffle their used cars around to each other at way below uh, true open market value. And the courts allow this. They allow that much, much lower price, the wholesale backlot lot uh, closed auction price To be used as the offset for your repo rather than requiring that the Blue Book value or the fair market value of that car on the open market be used.
1: So, if you're asking yourself, well, why don't you just use the Kelly Blue Book one? It's like, well, they don't keep historical records. So, you can't figure out what your car was worth a month ago. It can tell you what your car is worth right now. So, when you, by the time you get sued for a vehicle deficiency balance and you wanna know what the fair market value was at the time that this car was sold at auction, You can't. So if you're trapped in this loop, the only thing you can do is get an appraisal for your vehicle. So if you're facing a repossession and you're thinking about turning in the car, the only way to stop it is to prove that this is happening. And the only way to prove it is to get an appraisal for your car or maybe take a snapshot of what Kelly Blue Book says your car is worth.
0: (laughs) And you would have to think in advance to do that before it gets repoed. So if you're knowing that you're going to go late and that you may end up getting your car repoed, uh, I guess the advice would probably be that you ought to document its current value and condition in great detail to make yep. sure that you can get a somewhat better credit after your repo. But even if you've got that documentation, there's a darn good chance the court's not going to go for it because the reality is that when that car actually sells at auction and somebody actually pays the money for it, that's proof of its market value, and if the court finds that the way that auction was conducted was reasonable, then it doesn't matter what Blue Book said, because the truth was that car sold for X dollars, not what Blue Book said. It just doesn't seem very fair. and Because it's not. It isn't fair. And this is just one of those problems, uh, I would say, with our justice system where consumers are getting the short end of the stick. Talk to your legislature. What this really ends up being is a a huge giveaway to used car dealers is really what's going on there because they're the ones who end up getting the value. It's the dealership that purchases that your car, your repoed car at auction for way less than it's uh, on the lot price. They're the ones who get the benefit of it and you're stuck holding the bag, getting sued and, and paying cash afterwards to make up that difference. Not fair. It's a racket total racket. That's why it's on this show. (laughs) Drives me nuts.
1: (laughs) All right. For the last step, we'll talk about interest rates gone wrong. Freaking interest. So the big one uh, I have a problem with these days is credit card, credit card interest. Uh, Credit rates are like 2% for mortgages. But if you want to get a credit card, it's like 24%. So they operate as if you're already in default. <laughs> you get a credit card, they already assume you you're gonna default on it and they charge you the lowest is maybe thirteen point nine nine up to twenty nine point nine nine percent. So if you think about it, let's say you buy a hundred dollars worth of groceries. It didn't cost you a hundred dollars, it cost you one hundred and thirty dollars. <laughs> That's a
0: lot of money. Unless you pay it back promptly.
1: If you do it at the before the end yeah. of the month. It still costs you $130. (laughs) They still charge you interest. So, you know, the problem with, you know, high credit card interest is when you don't pay it off every month, and that balance just grows and grows and grows. And for some people, when they default on these credit cards or they make a late payment and they're at a default interest rate of whatever it is, or whatever one day late, whatever the credit card terms are it makes it almost impossible to pay off the credit card and it's kind of a a very difficult situation to be in. So the reason why we're talking about it is because you have to pay attention to interest rates on credit cards when you open them up. So it's really important that you don't get into that situation where you have a high interest credit card and they all disclose the APR, but stop taking the offer. Uh, it just gets to be a big problem because I see some people that have, you know, a thousand dollar card and we do a lot of debt settlement and bankruptcy. And by the time they get to us, the card balance is now like three grand, you know, and the limit was nine hundred and eighty five dollars. It's Like, how is that even possible? Interest. Lots of interest. It happens. And the bigger the credit card limit, the bigger the interest amount. So just be aware of credit card high Interest—they're insane these days. Uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about it because you don't get to negotiate that.
0: <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I I think what you do get to do about it, a couple things specifically: choose cards with lower interest rates. If you have fairly good credit, you will have some options available that are not 20 plus percent interest, and certainly not 30 percent interest. Interest rates on credit cards are quite a bit higher than they used to be. You're just not going to get the kind of interest rate that you might have had in the 90s or the early 2000s. But part of that reflects different ways that people are using credit cards these days. And I think that's a charitable way of saying a lot of people don't pay their credit cards. The default rate is high. And especially right now, with high unemployment and a lot of uncertainty in people's incomes, consumer debt is very high risk for banks. So banks are pretty reluctant to give somebody a high credit limit credit card right now unless they've got an excellent track record of paying back exactly that type of credit. So if you're looking at opening a new card, um, you got to understand that a bank is going to be wary of you because of that and because of our current economic circumstances. And that wariness is reflected in the high interest rate that you're looking at. And it's important to note that credit cards are not really intended to be long-term personal loans. The point is to allow you to buy things and pay them off quickly. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be spending more monthly on your credit card than what you can afford to pay monthly on your credit card, because that's not a sustainable long-term approach. uh, And it will result in rapidly escalating interest costs. So the best thing to do certainly is to pay off your credit card every month and not spend more on your card than you can afford to pay off monthly. But especially in difficult economic times, that is not always a viable approach. And if you end up in a cash crunch, you may have to use your credit cards as an emergency savings source. Just remember that if you've got a 25% interest rate on that, uh, that's going to climb really fast and it compounds monthly. So the excess interest that you didn't pay off last month becomes part of the principal balance that has interest accruing on it this month. And that just snowballs exponentially, uh, just like coronavirus cases, <laughs> growing, <It appears. laughs> growing upon growing. Uh, and it just escalates very quickly. And that's how you end up with that $3,000 bill on a $900 credit card. Um, can't let that get out of control. And if you find yourself in a situation where you need to borrow money longer term, you should really look at options other than credit cards to do that. If you can pull equity out of a house, if you can, uh, sell something, if you can borrow from family, really almost qualify
1: for a personal, qualify
0: for a personal loan, just a straight up personal loan, almost anything other than a credit card would be better because credit cards are simply not intended to work that way. And the interest rates that are applied to them, um, are not viable for that. And, and it reflects the discomfort that the lenders have with you using a credit card that way, because they know that when you get into that kind of a situation, when a consumer gets into an escalating interest balance on their credit card, they are at very high risk of default, especially with uh, high unemployment and lowering wages. They think you're not going to pay them and they may be right. So <laughs> that's why it's it important happens. to, yeah, it does happen. Uh, But if there's any way you can avoid getting yourself into that circumstance, that would be best because, man, a 30% interest rate, I mean, it's really second only to payday and title loans, which we've talked about previously on on brackets. Yeah. Those, of course, reflect tremendously high default rates, but it's just a whole lot better if you can avoid using credit cards that way and not get wrapped up in that racket.
1: Yep. Which brings us to student loans. Yep. Student loans have also pretty high interest rates these days. Private loans are somewhere between eight, nine percent. And when you're talking like maybe going to a private institution and taking out a private student loan, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So when you are in college or you have someone that is in college and you're thinking about student loans, you need to be looking at the loan terms and really making some decisions about whether or not and how you're going to afford this education. We just see it so regularly. We help so many people lowering payments, negotiating payments, discharge applications, anything related to student loans, uh, my office handles pretty freaking regularly. And one of the things that just really sucks is when you're when you're trapped in a high interest uh, student loan payment for 30 years. <laughs> Um, those things can get out of control, especially with private student loans. So if you have a private student loan with a company like AES or something and the interest is variable, um, it's really important to, to take a look at it, see what's really going on, see if you have any options to get out of that loan, uh, take out a personal loan and pay it off equity out of your home to pay off the student loan. I know that's not, I really hate telling people to do that, but you know, those loans are, are pretty, pretty terrible. And they, especially if you're in a payment where you're not covering the interest that's accruing on it every month, it just goes to the principal. And the same is true for federal loans. Like if you're in an income driven repayment plan and you're not paying enough to pay off the interest payment every month, um, that sucker just balloons. You can be in a payment plan for 15 years and still owe five times as much as you did when you went to school. So just pay attention to that. If you're wondering why it doesn't seem like you're making a dent in your student loan balances, it's because of interest.
0: Important to note, uh, if you have a high interest student loan and you have the ability to use home equity to pay that off and lose some of your home equity, but finance that at a current mortgage rate. Uh, Although it may seem painful to do it, there is absolutely no good reason not to that I can think of. You're trading one loan for another from high interest to low interest. That's all it is. And although you may feel like you have quite a bit of equity in your house, uh, you don't really have as much as you think you do when you also have that liability for a few hundred thousand dollars to another institution. Uh, you got to look at your overall net worth, and what you'll find is that if you make that trade, paying off the student loan with an equity credit line on your house, your net worth remains the same, but your cash flow improves. Because whatever the difference in that interest rate was, if you go from an 8% interest rate down to a 4% interest rate, uh, then you have changed your uh, annual cash flow requirement by 4% of, say, $200,000. That's worth quite a lot to you. Um, it's a, a good move to make to consolidate your debts into the lowest interest pool of loans that you can. But
1: please, please talk to a financial advisor or an attorney before you do any of this. Do not just go around paying off your student loans. (laughs) Get professional
0: advice first. The mechanics of doing it matter a lot. Just saying saying do it doesn't get the job done. (laughs) The nuanced details of exactly how you pull that off, the sequencing of things, the negotiating (laughs) of things, it matters a lot. Um, And it's fairly complicated if you're dealing with Uh, you know, an entire undergraduate student loan, couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe grad school in there too. Uh, These are pretty big financial transactions and it definitely pays to have professional guidance in getting that accomplished.
1: Yep, in dividends. Yes. (laughs) And last up, post-judgment interest. Uh, People a lot of the times don't realize that if you had a maybe a default judgment entered against you for a credit card or repo or any kind of debt collection or business transaction, judgment for an eviction, you've been sued for it. There's probably interest accruing on it. There is post-judgment interest that gets attached to these suckers. Sometimes you get lucky and someone didn't request interest and it's not growing at all. But there are some really unfortunate cases out there where a judgment was entered in 2008 and it's now an exponentially high number. It's not uncommon for my office to see a judgment that started under ten grand to be like thirty
0: dollars or $40,000 now. And perhaps they haven't even been trying to collect it from you in the meantime. Yep. A number of these cases that Rochelle's been telling me about recently are instances where somebody may have gotten a default judgment a decade ago, something that they didn't even know they got sued for. And there's been no real attempt at all to collect that money from them since. And now all of a sudden after a decade of interest has been ballooning on that thing. And it's now worth several times more than whatever the original debt was uh, back in the early 2000s, when you defaulted on a credit card or uh, moved out of an apartment or whatever it was. Um, I don't know. I don't think those were your actual cases. But um, whatever it was that, that ended up causing that debt a long time ago, It may have been a couple grand, now it's 30 or 40 grand because it's had huge amounts of interest accruing forever. And lo and behold, they show up and try to garnish your wages out of nowhere over a decade after you last heard about this thing. And unfortunately, there probably isn't a whole lot you can do about that other than try to negotiate a settlement on it. Um, The system is stacked against you, which yet again is why we're talking about it today on the rackets.
1: There are motions you can file, but good luck. It's very difficult. We try it.
0: We lose. The track record is not great on that. It Mm -mm. it is probably worth doing because there's a fair bit of money at stake, and it certainly pays to have an attorney involved in the process. Bulldog it. Yeah, bulldog it. Make it tough. Uh, See what you can do to to hammer them down and get a deal done. But bottom line is you're probably going to pay a heck of a lot more than seems fair.
1: Yeah, it's a really tough one. It's an issue that we just deal with, and it's just heartbreaking to have to tell someone who's... Maybe trying to buy a house that didn't even know that the judgment was there, that it's like, yeah, no, I'm sorry, that's valid. That's actually yep. valid. You this actually whole thing is
0: actually legal. Forty grand on that nine I mean, thousand dollar credit card from two thousand six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you haven't heard anything about in forever. Yep. You actually owe forty grand on that.
1: I mean, it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. So there are solutions for that one, but again, talk to your senators and representatives about that issue caps on post-judgment interest. It is definitely something uh, worth investigating.
0: Yeah, well, and it's particularly interesting um, how this comes about. The high post-judgment interest is a contractual term in your original loan agreement. Whatever it is that you defaulted on and got sued for and ended up with a judgment on, whatever that agreement was, it had an interest rate in there as a default interest rate. And it was probably a pretty big number. And it's probably something that you didn't look at or pay attention to back when you signed on. You probably didn't have much of a choice either. If you wanted to do business with that company, you were going to have to sign that contract. But the end result of it is that they are allowed to take that contract to court and use it to support a huge interest number on that judgment that they get against you. And then they are not required to collect that immediately. They can just stick that judgment in their pocket Wait, 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 wait. Renew the judgment. Wait some more. And then when they feel like it's gotten big enough and it's ripe enough that they want to come after you for it, they can come knocking and say, hey, uh, remember this? Now, I know you don't remember this, but we do. (laughs) And you owe us a whole bunch of money now. So really, you're getting set up as much as 15 years in advance for that kind of abusive collection practice. They knew back when you were offered that credit card or that finance deal that this was was the potential outcome. Uh, And they may even have had this plan in mind at that point. Certainly the law was in place to allow them to do it, and they took full advantage of it. Um, And certainly what Rochelle has been seeing in her practice appears to be intentional abuse of this process. Uh, Intentional elimination of collection activity until the judgment has ballooned to such a point that it's just insane. And then even if they negotiate it down to a 50% settlement, they're still getting paid many times more than what they were originally owed. It's pretty bad.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a racket. Total racket. <laughs> Complete and total racket. Yes. Well, that does it for all the rackets for today. There are plenty more in the pipeline. <laughs> I was high just going to say, man, there
0: are plenty more rackets out there. <laughs> we'll be doing these regularly, I think. <laughs> just going to keep finding the rackets and talking about them. Telling you all about them.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for listening and thank you to our show sponsor, X-Firm, a law firm helping people and businesses recover from financial crisis. and. You can find us online at xfirmlaw.com. And Mike, you want to tell people how to contact you?
0: Yes, I'm Mike Polton with the law firm Polton & Royan. You can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro. You can call us at 602-427-5613. And again, we provide uh, legal services for small businesses. And I also do business consulting uh, aside from my legal practice. And you can contact me through the firm for either of those. Awesome. Thanks for listening and we will talk to you next
1: time.